welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Mitch from Planet 5D joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. This week we've got some new cameras, we've got some new lenses, and we've got a secret, amazing, fix-all, quick-release play. But first, Mitch, what, what? what have you been up to, man? Uh, I run a website called Planet 5D. Have you heard of that? I have. Actually, I don't run it very well recently because all the writers are doing all the work and I'm just trying to. Uh, I do have something exciting, though. Speaking of that, I'm doing a totally new site design this weekend. It's going to be totally new and different. Okay, same content, just different look and feel with some additional menus and cool stuff coming up on the weekend. Probably Wait, Sunday. Are you moving to waterfall design? Yeah, I don't even know what the hell that is. Oh, it's where you do all the squares, and the squares like go all the way down, and everything flows down the yeah, page. Yeah. Well, there there will be a first page that kind of does that it, that I've never done before. But now nah, most of it's just regular blog stuff with blog articles and some gear reviews and stuff like that. You know, uh, I haven't updated the look of dslrfilmnoob.com in probably four years once i settled on something i was just like stick with it mostly because well i i switched about two years ago to this theme and i i thought i was going to really like it a lot and i don't like it and long story short i found a brand new theme a couple of weeks ago that just blows me away has a lot of flexibility and so i bought it it's called x theme and I've used it on another site already, and it's so cool I just had to switch. I wasn't planning on switching Planet 5D for a while, but I just had to do it. Well, on my side, folks, uh, you can find me in October. I've got my convention circuit schedule going. I will be at uh, Minneapolis Crypticon. I will be at uh, Texas Frightmare Weekend and a few others pitching and showing off and talking about my new feature-length film, uh, Shivers Down Your Spine. So if you're into bad <laughs> horror movies, uh, you can catch up with me in Minneapolis, uh, Austin, Texas, uh, Chicago, or many of these other cities as the dates cool. come forward. I'll announce those. But that's about it, really, editing my next feature-length film. Uh, why I did two at a time, no idea, but <laughs> uh, you just I, want a little stress in your life. Yeah. I just all. wanted to torture myself every day after work, do some more editing on that note though. Time. There's a note for the news. The news. The news. The news. time for the news. Now in the startup, I mentioned uh, that we've got an amazing, an amazing, amazing. mind-blowing quick release plate. Uh, this is from Metal Cron. It's a $130 quick release plate, and basically this guy screws onto the bottom of your camera. You assemble this worm gear sort of setup, and it slides on to any quarter 20 stud. Now, this thing is supposed to be the end-all, be-all of quick release plates. And before I dive in and talk about what I think might be danger zones <laughs> on this, Mitch, what do you think about this guy? Uh, the the folks at Edelkrone are doing some cool stuff, okay? First of all, they're a sponsor of mine. So let's get that out of the way, right? Um I, I'm I'm intrigued by this. I'm I'm really curious. I like the fact that it's a very slick on and off. The demo movie is very impressive. Uh, 
whether or not people really need to do this that frequently, I don't know. It sort of depends upon your needs, obviously. Uh, I love the way you can just grab something on and off. Things I don't like about it is damn tall. Uh, adds a little bulk. It might not. It might mean that you can't fit something on a particular rig if you've got like a a cage. It might make your camera too tall for the cage. I have a cage that's pretty tight uh, from top to bottom, and I don't think I'd be able to use that cage anymore if I had that on the bottom of my camera and was really loving it. So there's, there are some pluses and minuses, and of course, maybe one of them that you're going to talk about, we haven't seen it in use yet, but the question I have is, does it really lock you horizontally? Will your camera twist in place? which they don't really demonstrate in the quickie video that they did. Yeah, the video makes it really interesting looking. And I've got the unassembled version showing up here for the video viewers. Um, the two concerns I have about this, uh, first of all, is locking. And Mitch caught that right away. The second is actually cross-threading. Uh, so if you look at the way this is designed, it's actually three studs uh, that are creating a worm gear around your uh, quarter 20 stud. So you disassemble this thing, uh, you run a stud up into your camera, and then you put the whole thing together. And when you move the plate, it turns the gear and the gear turns the worm gears and the worm gears attach to the quarter 20 stud. So that's a lot of extra stuff in the setup that could go <laughs> sideways on you pretty fast. Now, I'm worried about stripping screws, you know, cross-threading could be an issue, uh, assembly is an issue, and then of course, as Mitch mentioned, height. So It doesn't come assembled? Uh, no, to get it onto your camera, uh, you have to take it apart, and it, if you look at how it attaches to your I camera... Had, hadn't you, thought about that. Yeah, you, uh, you have to disassemble it, because right here, and I'll show a picture so everybody can kind of see what I'm... I'm looking at this is uh, there's no area right here to get your screwdriver in there to firmly attach that to your camera. So you have to attach the base plate to your camera before you assemble this little guy to, to get it together. So that in itself uh, gives you two or three more points where things could go sideways. Now, the engineering on this is pretty excellent, and the design idea is very impressive. So I don't want to, you know, dis disregard this right out of the chute, but I would like to find out a little bit more about how securely it attaches. Also, of course, the rig thing that Mitch brought up is excellent. That Most of us have built rigs around a specific size, height, and shape of a camera, and now you add what, you know... Uh, half inch or better to that and you may be bumping up against the top of your rig it might not fit uh also concerns about balancing on you know uh any kind of steady cam or something like that you're uh, changing your position of gravity on the camera itself which could affect you know tilt and yaw so kind of a different deal i don't know you got anything else to add to that mitch hmm well i think if if you do have to go through that much effort to put the dang thing together uh, in the first place, you're obviously going to it's a, it's a permanent solution, basically. Right. I, I think mean, so. Yeah. You're you're going to attach it to your camera. So if you have multiple cameras, you're going to need multiple devices and they're one hundred and thirty nine dollars a piece. That could be so very spendy. Yeah, it could be spendy. So 
Great. Interesting idea. We're going to obviously reserve uh, pluses or minuses on this one, I think. we got to see it in use. Now, i got a quick question while we're on the quick release plate A topic. quick question on a quick release plate. That's funny. <laughs> Whoa. Um, so <laughs> I use, personally, I'm a 501PL user. It's a plate that looks like this. Uh, they're from Manfrotto. There are a few other sort of generic companies that make very similar plates to this, and it's adaptable to several different styles of heads, including the 501, the 503, the 700 series, and so on. Mitch, what do you use for QR plates? Uh, one of those. <laughs> one of these? <laughs> uh, I it Typically... Um, that's the one I'm using. Yes. The 501? Um, I've thought about, um, Zakudo has a new, well, it's not new anymore, a quick release plate that uh, a lot of people I know like, but I've, I've never purchased one of those. So I don't, that's, that's the, the 501-ish one is the one that I use all the time. Now, are you talking about that Zakudo stud that they had for a while? You know, where it's, uh. Sort of like a rod that slides into a joint. Is is that what you're? No, I don't remember. Ah, I don't remember. Yeah, or maybe it was Kessler. It was Kessler. Ah, sorry, Kessler. Kessler was doing it. See more plugs. The only thing I run into, and you know, quick complaint about this is I love this, and I this has kind of been something that came with uh, earlier cameras I had because they had a really big base. But with DSLRs, your base isn't quite as big. I don't know if I have an example camera here. Yep, um, here is a GH4, for example. And the issue I have with this particular plate, and I've thought about changing, is actually that it's got a flip-out screen. And so when you thread this on here, you end up sort of capturing the screen in place. So if you don't have it popped out ahead of time, oh, really? it will yeah. sort of stick to this rubber padding here. And I've considered getting a smaller plate set up, but... I have probably 15 of these in my collection and the bases to go with them, which represents, you know, probably three or $400 worth of an investment in QR plates. So I've kind of just dealt with the issues that I've run into. Uh, once you get sort of invested in a camp, it's pretty expensive to sell off and change because these plates are 15 to 20 bucks a piece, plus the uh, the mounting version that goes with this can set you back another 30 or $40. So... I don't know I if think... I'll ever make a change, but I've been running into issues with this particular rig right here, and this is the uh, small rig. I've got uh, that Sony E-mount to A-mount adapter on it, and you can see the base is somewhat uneven. So when you use a 501 plate on here, you uh -oh. end up with this sort of jobber, which doesn't Yikes. quite work. So you have to kind of sort of do something like this in order to get it to fit or use a Swiss cheese plate to adapt well, that's it. Why, that's why Edelkron's come up with this one universal thing that you'll never take off your camera. <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, let's see. How many cameras do I have? I've got uh, five cameras in the office right now. So what's five times 130? You know, that can... That's spendy, buddy. Yeah, that yeah. can add up fast. Now. Yikes. Moving on down the line here, we actually, this is actually something I'm pretty excited about. Uh, the new Olympus <laughs> OMD EM10 Mark II. And at first glance, it's nothing more than a sort of stylized version of their 5D, but 
or D5, excuse me, now I'm getting these numbers <laughs> mixed around in my head. Uh, but uh, at a closer look, uh, they're providing you with the five-axis stabilization. It's still got the 16.1 megapixel sensor built in. This guy is $699, making it one of the most attractively priced micro four-thirds bodies. And its vintage styling is also uh, fairly sexy as well. And actually, I misspoke. It's a three-axis image stabilization. They're not using the five, so you are missing out a little bit from the D5. But still, six ninety nine. Mitch, do you think people are going to jump on the Olympus EM one zero Mark II? <laughs> uh, I I'm laughing because we're constantly talking about the fact that these product numbers are confusing as hell. And unless you're in a specific vendor that you're paying a lot of attention to, it gets really confusing, right? Oh yeah. Cause I was like, Oh, didn't they just announce the camera? Or was, is this the, like, I'm really confused. So I actually had to go look it up because I'm not sure all the different cameras. So the, in the OMD line, they've got the M five, they've got the M 10, They've got the M1, so we've got three different versions in the EM line, or the OMD line, I'm sorry, I guess that's what it, it technically is. Yeah, they basically do a numbering scheme similar to Canon, where the 1 is the top of the line, the right. 5 is the next one down, and then in the old days, Canon used to have the 10s, the 20s, and the 30s as opposed to the Rebel series. And so right. they're doing something similar to that in their naming structure. Uh, why they decided to go uh, a 5 Mark II, uh, you know, a little confusing to me. but uh, Just to make it be just like everybody else, like the master Canon, right? But so the the M1's only 1300 bucks. Yeah. Yeah, and so this one of the, one of the things you ask about will I jump on this? Well, of course I'm still stuck in Canon land, but uh, one of the things that Hugh likes to do, one of my writers over Planet Five D, uh, he likes to buy the really low price cameras, like the he's got he, right now he's on the the Sony the A nine thousand. Okay, uh, he was on the actually one of the five guys I think ever bought a Canon SL one and he actually bought two of them because they were, he sold like he went out and he sold his five D Mark two and bought two of the SL ones and still had money left over to buy other stuff. So he's like, you know, the video chips on these things are, are technically usually as good as the higher end ones. So why not buy the bottom end of the line and buy two and be able to do multicam stuff and, and I think that makes a lot of sense for many people. So you think maybe moving to the lower priced line of Olympus's offering of the OMD? What? It, oh, dang it! I forgot it again. It's the ten. <laughs> it's the ten Mark yes. Two. Uh, you think that's a, a good way to go? I mean, it, it is half the price, roughly, of a GH four or their OMD five Mark Two. They've put so much stuff in here. I mean, it, granted, like you said, it only has three axis, ooh, as opposed to five axis. Um, I, I'd love to see the content out of this. We were really excited when we saw the the M5 several months ago. We talked about that on the show for quite a while. And if 
I don't do they put the same sensors in there? Don't they? Um, aren't they all the same virtual sensor? Yeah, every one of these is running the 16 megapixel sensor. Um, they also upgraded the video format. Originally, Olympus only allowed 30 frames per second, which is 29.97, not 30 exactly. Right. But uh, they had no 24 mode. Uh, in their new releases, they're adding 24p to all of their cameras. So they've kind of addressed some of the video issues. The big thing about these cameras, though, is not the the sensor because, uh, as far as stills goes, sixty megapixel uh, on the GH4 or on an Olympus body, you're gonna get really similar uh, image results for stills. But for video, the big missing thing here is that uh, the Olympus cameras don't have 4K. However, they do have Aww. image stabilization now. The previous line of of five series uh, Olympus cameras had three axis stabilization, and now they have five axis, and people were really excited about that stabilization process because now you can sort of use your camera without anything else and get fairly steady shots. The three axis, there was complaints that because of the shake this direction, uh, you know, forwards and backwards, you were getting uh, still kind of wobbly images. And it's exciting to see that they added that to the lower level camera, but three axis may not be enough to satisfy that sort of stabilized video thing that people were really excited about. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's 699 for this body. It's about 1100 bucks for the next step up. So you're only talking a jump of what, about $400. I don't say I shouldn't say only because four hundred dollars is significant, but yeah. you know when you look at Canon's line where you go to the six D, you can get that for like twelve hundred bucks. You go to the five D Mark Three, and now you're jumping up another grand and some change. So it's a lot more significant to go from uh, Canon's you know mid level to high level. And even from the five D all the way up to the one D, you're you know, what is that, like five grand, four grand? Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. So you know, it's not nearly as significant as other can- camera manufacturers to jump to the next level. And even their one series is what'd you say, thirteen hundred dollars? Yes. So from the middle of the line all the way up to the top of the line, you know, you're not going nearly as far as you would with other camera brands. Right. It, it's very uh easy to sell someone on the next level up. Yeah. And, and and the M1 has a lot of good features on it, like dual fast, duals. Dual memory cards? Yeah. Uh, well, although I'm confused because I thought that's what I was reading, and now I can't read very well because it says dual fast AF. Oh, oh yeah. That. Okay. So it's using the uh, contrast autofocus as well as that... Uh, uh, distance yeah. sensor hunting feature that's available right. on the lens itself. <laughs> I don't know if the, um, I haven't used the top of the line Olympus um, one series, so I don't. Does it have two memory card slots? Do you know? I don't know. Let me click on it and find out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, You're kind of the blind leading the blind it, here. It's all marketing stuff. This on this page that I'm on. Uh, so no, I don't know, but. Like you say, though, it's pretty significant. Um, I'm really curious to see if Canon does anything significant at their um, Canon Expo, which is coming up in a week and a half. Yeah, you're going to be attending, aren't you, Mitch? No. Actually, I'm bailing out on that. What? Why? 
because it's it's freaking spendy to go to New York City. I started pricing stuff the other day, uh, hotel rooms and and the like. And um, my Hugh, the guy that I was talking about a little while ago, is is he lives in Philly and his sister lives in New York. So I got him a ticket and he's going. And I'm like, well, <laughs> if we're gonna have somebody there to cover it, and I can save two thousand dollars. Uh, and I just found out, by the way, real sidebar here, my brother who lives in England is getting married next summer. Oh, well, congratulations, man. Yeah, it's cool. So that means, and I'm best man, so that means I'm going to England next summer. And I was talking to my travel agent yesterday, and he says, well, can you can you move the wedding into a different time of the year? Because going to England in summer is going to cost you about $1,000. Oh, yeah. For the plane ticket? And my wife and two kids are going, so that's four grand just for plane fare. <laughs> uh, so when I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm not going to New York this year for Canon Expo. Yeah. Which I really, I enjoy that show, but. New York hotels are very spendy. I got a tour of the B&H, you know, back factory a couple yeah. months back. Uh, by the way, they're a sponsor of the site. So, uh, but I flew up there and I was like, "Oh, I'll just get a you know cheap Roach Coach hotel while I'm up in New York. No problem." You know yeah. how much a Roach Coach cost? It was like a hundred and eighty some dollars a night, and I had to yeah. share a bathroom with another room, and it was yeah. very uh, iffy. You know, I yeah. really to get to somewhere from you know junky to nice, you're looking in the like mid two hundreds for a room every night, and that's uh huh. You know exactly, exactly why I bailed out. You spend three nights there, and you probably pay more for a hotel than most people pay for their rent each month. It's, yeah. it's a little insane. Well, I I was I was going to go on Monday and and go visit a friend of mine, uh, Michael Artsis, who does a show, and I was going to be on his show live. And then I was going to go B and H and Vimeo, and so I was going to stay five nights, and that was close to fifteen hundred dollars for the hotels that I was looking at. And I'm like. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you know, I used to I I worry typically worry about the airfare when I'm going somewhere cuz that's usually the biggest chunk and I'm like Southwest gets me there for 300 bucks there and back and I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, this is killing me this hotel stuff." This isn't really a, a flight podcast, but if you <laughs> or vacationing podcast either, but if you are willing to hoof it, you can stay on Coney Island for really cheap and you just ride like a a uh, 45 or 50 minute train ride in or you can stay in jersey and it's about right. an hour 20 minutes in by train and the prices in jersey aren't too bad i mean i don't really care for newark airport but you know i mean <laughs> well my intent was because the last time i was in new york was five years ago for the canon expo ah. i don't travel to new york very often so i was going to i wanted to stay in in new york city at Self so that I could experience the ambiance and you know <laughs> buy some roasted chestnuts on the street corner, which is probably way too early. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, just stay out of Times Square because that that place yeah. is a mess, man. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's so. I right now I'm not. There's a possibility that I might still go if anybody wants to donate fifteen hundred dollars to my hotel room. Uh, just send it to my PayPal account, please, or one of my. There you go. Cool. Ha! He's getting into it now. Uh, I mean, a lot of lot of 
people like, you know, you and I maybe have go beg a sponsor to pay your trip. Well, I don't like doing that either. So, yeah. And you really have to be doing something that plasters their name all over everything exactly. in order to accomplish that. Uh, be, uh, you know, if you go to, um, NAB every year. That one's a much more affordable conference because it's not in a city yeah. where it's really expensive to stay. And you yeah. can always, you know, if your budget's small, you can always slum it at the uh, Circus Circus and spend like 45 bucks a night and, you know, have dancing clowns outside your room. But uh, yeah, you go to New York or you go to LA and no matter what, it's going to be very expensive. Uh, when I do the convention circuits for my feature length films, I tend to stick to the less popular cities like Minneapolis, Chicago, and so on, because uh, my airfare and room will only set me back, you know, uh, probably, I think it's 250 to fly to Minneapolis, and then it's like 80 bucks a night to stay in the convention yeah. center hotel, so much more affordable. And then for those, because it's an event that uh, I'm presenting at, the event itself gives me discounts on room and, and food and everything like that, so that I spend even less which Perfect. is very nice. Now, yeah. enough about that inside baseball. <laughs> While we're on the Micro Four Thirds subject, I wanted to bring this up. I just picked this up. Uh, actually, it came in yesterday. This is the Olympus uh, 7 to 14 millimeter F2.8. Here I have in my right hand the Panasonic uh, 7 to 14 millimeter F2.8, or F4, excuse me. This lens is about $700. This lens is I believe I paid $1,100 gray market for. So look at these two lenses. This is f2.8, this is f4, and similar to what you get in full-frame bodies, you substantially jump up in price when you go from an f4 to an f2.8. Now, right. I'm trying to decide whether it was really worth it as far as dollar value goes to go to f2.8. You do get more light, but, you know, for depth of field and everything, at 7 millimeters, it's equivalent to about 14 millimeter, uh, you know, full frame. It's, you know, most things are in focus anyway. So F2.8 to F4, you're not really getting a huge jump in shallow depth of field. Uh, what do you think, Mitch? Is it worth it to make jumps like this? Have you done that with your your Canon lenses? I, I think, don't you have the uh, 24 to 105 F4? Yes, I do. And... Actually, my daughter is using that right now. Um, she's in college. <gasps> That's another reason why I don't want to spend a whole lot of money right now. Um, and my second one starts next year. So, oh, Jesus. Ding! She's doing some portrait shoots, actually, recently. Actually getting paid for sh portrait shoots, which is kind of cool. Uh, using the 24 to 105. And it works great. So, you know... Is it worth spending the big bucks? I think most people would typically say, uh, I mean, let me ask you this. Is there a massive quality difference? Is one sharper than the other? Is is there some significant visual difference to the final image? So I've only been running around for about uh, two days or a day with this guy. I can't 100% speak to the sharpness, but to my eye, it does look significantly sharper in the corners and in the center. I, I know qualities. you've got the over on the wall that we can't see. You've got this massive focus chart, right? One of the really <laughs> detailed ones that you spend hours 
Oh man, no, no. <laughs> I okay. There are some filmmakers and photographers out there who do have the charts. They do all the tests. They, you know, they shoot the the old squares. They shoot the, you know, every. I don't know. I, I mean, there's ways to do it. There's lists. Uh, there's lots of directions on how to do that. But it's just so time consuming to sit there and change the lens out. Take your shots, look at all your shots and posts, go through it, get another lens and do that again. I have neither the time nor the willingness to put my lens through those sorts of tests. And because of that, I normally arbitrarily look at the lens, shoot some stuff with it, look at the other lens, shoot some stuff with it. And I'm like, well, I like this one better. I don't like this one as much, you know, and is it scientific? Absolutely not. It's personal preference. And sometimes... You find yourself saying, well, I like this lens better because it feels nicer in my hand. You know, it's less about whether you notice the image quality difference and more about the design, the build and so on. And I will say, you know, you feel the Olympus uh, 7 or the uh, Panasonic 11 to 14. It's it's sort of plasticky. Uh, the, you know, focus ring is sort of joke, you know, hunky, not very good. It's hard to turn. You get the Olympus out. And I mean, this is nice and smooth. It's got a long throw to it. You want to go to manual focus, you just click the ring down. Now you have nice manual focus capability on this guy. It's all metal. It's uh, supposedly weather sealed, although I see no rubber gasket on there, so I don't know. But it definitely does feel a lot more substantial and nice in my hand. Uh, You'll get a little bit more low light out of it. I mean, you know, it is... F2.8, which I think in Micro Four Thirds terms is equivalent to, like, what, 5.6, something like that. Um, so it's fairly very sexy, but I don't know, for a lot of people, if they just want wide angle, how much low-light, wide-angle stuff are you going to be shooting? You know, yeah. uh, maybe, you know, there's a possibility of real estate stuff. I suppose if you're doing interiors for a real estate agency, maybe that's an issue, but... Honestly, if you're going to set something like that up, you're probably going to have some flash units uh, sitting around to sort of get the proper exposure, especially with light coming in from outside and so on. So I don't really know. Uh, The other thing that you'll run into uh, with either one of these lenses is look at how bulbous the element is on this guy. Uh, Bulbous, there's a word. Yeah, you're not going to get any kind of (laughs) lens filters or ND filters on here. So keep that in mind if that's something you want to use. You might be able to put this, you know, uh, behind a matte box if you really want to, but for regular people who don't use matte boxes like myself, uh, this uh, is, is what oh, it come is. come on, DJ. You're a professional. You have a matte box, and uh, you use it regularly with lots of flags. Oh, man. Okay. So I, I don't know if rant you've heard this ranch rant from me before, but <laughs> matte boxes – there, there are reasons to have a map box, and I'll, I'll cover those first. If you have a camera that is permanently mounted to rails, and you have a bunch of graduated ND filters that you can slide on, and you really have it attached well to your lens, and you're going to keep it on there uh, for an indefinite period of time, and you're using it practically with flags to keep you know light from the corners out, and you want to reduce lens flare and so on, that's great. But for... Probably 85 to 90 percent of the people, a matte box, you know, especially if you're buying like a $250, you know, uh, Film City matte box from eBay, you're not getting that level. You're just 
you're putting something really giant on your camera. It's like putting one of those fins on the back of a cheap car and saying that this provides traction for your car as you go 45 down the interstate. This thing does almost nothing for you other than look very gaudy and be in front of your camera. And I have had filmmakers tell me, well, my clients prefer me to have a matte box because it looks amazing. I look amazing when I have it. I look very professional. Well, that's fine. You know, I guess if you're selling some sort of mythos of filmmaking and you're not worried about selling your actual video product, then go for it. Go spend your money that you could invest on a nice lens, on things that will actually help you like audio gear, microphones, so on, on a matte box that you probably won't ever even drop a filter into to use. Why? Do that to yourself. And, you know, honestly, for the most part, minus these wide-angle lenses, if you're shooting on a 24 to 70, for example, go get a variable ND filter. Go spend 100 bucks and get a really nice variable ND filter that won't color cast your image and slap that on the front. You've basically done what you need. Go get some filters for whatever, you know, get a filter in an 82 filter thread and then adapt down for all of your lenses, and you're basically accomplishing what you would get out of a matte box for most shoots. Now, there are exceptions, and somebody's going to come back and be like, well, DJ, what about when you're doing this? And you're absolutely right. (laughs) There are times when you need a matte box, but most people do not need a $700 or $1,000 matte box. It's not going to help you. It's not going to make anything better for you, and you should spend your money elsewhere. Mitch, you know, I'm sorry I'm getting animated and excited about this, but it's just one of those frustrating things do you do you think matte boxes are good are you do you think someone's more professional when you see them with a matte box you see that cabinet over there it has three matte boxes in it no it doesn't it has zero i i was gonna i almost made you spit your water didn't i I know (laughs) (laughs) no i i i do believe that if you're in trying to impress somebody a client The matte box looks very sophisticated. It looks like you're, you know, the king of filmmaking. Um, My camera right here that I use a lot, uh, it's called an iPhone. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to put a matte box on that sucker, am I? So, no. I've always questioned matte boxes. I'm a I'm a really cheap kind of filmmaker kind of guy when I'm ma- making stuff. The stuff that I shoot, again, I'm doing talking head videos of myself. There's absolutely no need for that kind of stuff. If you need fancy ass filters like four by fours and stuff like that, there's you know, like you said, there's potential reasons for having one. But for the average Joe like you and me, nah. Yeah. So, sorry, vendors. Well, and the thing was, there was a race to the bottom for a while where uh, more and more companies were selling matte boxes that were cheaper and cheaper down to where, and I mentioned Film City, they are one of the companies that makes some of the lower end versions of rigs that look fairly similar to higher end versions with, uh, you know, plastic instead of metal and so on. You're spending 200 bucks and these guys are putting a $200 matte box on their $150 T2i and building out something that they can't even carry around, you buy a lens, man. Buy a nice lens. (laughs) Yeah. Get rid of your kit lens and put that matte box away. Sell it to somebody who's a sucker and use that money to get a nice prime for your camera body. So do you you buy a... I'm sorry. I'm I'm going down a, a, a 
rabbit hole. Do you buy a lot of non-brand stuff? Do you buy the cheap knockoffs? Uh, it depends. So there are things I will not skimp on. Um, adapters and clamps, I generally tend to buy the much nicer uh, clamps because they're holding expensive gear. Uh, for example, and I'll turn this over here. If you look, I've got a torch LED bolt that's sort of providing a little bit of light for me here, and it's on a friction arm. The friction arm, as well as the clamp, is the slightly higher dollar. It's a $50 friction arm as opposed to one of the $15 or $20 friction arms, and that's because it has a $350 LED light on it. If <laughs> that were to fail or you know be of poor or faulty quality, then I am going to damage or break a fairly nice LED lamp. So I don't want to do that. But on the other hand, you have stuff like this. They sell these for as high as 30 bucks. And uh, for the audio listeners, this is basically a ball head, little ball head with a you know cold shoe adapter on it. And most of the time, what are you putting on this? Like a small microphone, something like that. Right. Right. You can spend as much money as you want on these, go up to $50 if you want for something like this, or you can go on eBay and you can get a dozen of these for like 30 bucks. And you know, they're down to like two or $3 a piece. They're very, very affordable. And as long as you're not putting a lot of weight on it, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's not that big a deal. You, you grab one of these, it's fine. If it starts to go bad, you'll notice it. You just toss it in the trash. It's $3. No, not a problem. So there are compromises and you have to determine like what makes sense. Uh, if it's cheap and plastic and it's going to break, are you going to, are you going to be using this tool all the time enough so that it's going to warrant having the nicer version? Or are you going to use it once or twice? This is like Harbor Freight. You, right. you get a tool. Are you going to fix your sink once and you're not you're not a plumber? You're not going to be working on it all the time. That's fine. Go buy the cheap Harbor Freight tool for like $20. If you are going to do it for a living, then go buy the nicer stuff. And there are there's stuff you can compromise on. Um Here's a good example. Like, uh, you know, as well as I do, that several companies make camera cages that have wood handles on it. You know, great. You know, you're going to spend five or six hundred dollars from wooden camera to buy one of those rigs, and it's machined aluminum with some patched on wood. Uh, small rig makes machined aluminum. You notice the lack of, uh, you know, organic pieces on here. There's no wood on this thing. Is it substantially worse than uh, the wooden camera rigs? Absolutely not. It's all metal. It's it's very well made. It's put together, but it's not as classy looking from a right. distance. And it's what this is a uh, hundred and forty bucks versus three hundred and forty dollars, four hundred and fifty dollars for the the uh, wooden camera equivalent. So, you know, in those regards, definitely worth going a little bit less expensive. Now. Make sure you review stuff and you, you talk to other people. You find out right. if uh, it's good or not. But, I mean, I don't know, Mitch. What about you? Do, you? do you use the generic stuff on a regular basis? Pills? Yes, I buy generics all the time. <laughs> uh, it's it's just an interesting question because – and I and I know I'm ranting off way off topic here. But I was talking to a vendor the other day on the phone, and he has discovered that – uh, he's he's making good money on the product that he sells, which is very unique. And I'm not going to say what it is. It it has it's a kind of like a rig, like a, a handheld thing, like you were showing. But 
what he's discovered is that the Korean, Japanese, Asian knockoff is selling 10 times the number he is because it's a lot less expensive. Yeah. And, and he's like, this is killing me. He said, you know, they're making the money. I spent all the money designing this thing because it's unique. And it, and the one that he created initially was not patented, which is his mistake. Uh, but, but now he, you know, he's, he's working on a second generation and he's going to patent the hell out of it. Uh, because he wants to be able to go after all these knockoffs. Now, I'm not sure that's going to solve his problems, but from the vendor viewpoint, I can understand that they spend a lot of money developing something and then just to have somebody knock it off and people go, well, I'm going to buy that one because it's cheaper is frustrating. So I, I'm just, I was happened to be looking at it from the other viewpoint the other day. Well, a great oh. example. Um, these guys used to be a site sponsor and all, I'll show it off real quick. Uh, CPM film or camera gears. Yeah. They used to be called CPM film tools. Uh, they do right. injection mold carbon fiber stuff and really good tools. Excellent. Uh, love their stuff. Really well made and everything. But then you go on eBay here and uh, bring it up and you see stuff that's fairly similar. Not quite 100% knockoff, but you know, uh, the rigs and uh, the, the, the frame and everything are basically taken completely from their design. And the price difference, you know, uh, CPM sells their stuff for somewhere in the range of about 400 bucks, And these guys are selling it for $147. Uh, right. Did not have to spend the time doing the research or anything else. They just saw their rig, copied it, and put it out on eBay. And the thing is, there's not a whole lot that the company can do about it because right. it's on eBay, so it's sort of like the wild west of selling stuff you know it'd be like trying to stop a guy at a flea market from you know drawing marvel comics and selling them you know at his right. booth you know you right. know it's happening but you can't run it down and and stop everything and then right. after a time you know so the only thing the the guy creating this can do is hope that he sells enough of them to make back his investment on research and everything before someone clones his stuff and starts selling it again and that's one example. There's many other examples of that on the market. And the for the most part, the knockoffs are of lower quality. Uh, a lot of times um, they're not using the same uh, types of metals. Or it, in the case of the plastic injection, there were a lot of issues where the molds were overheated so that the plastic was brittle and cracked when they were putting wow. it together. So, yeah. You know, or Zacuto, actually, I think they had a study that they they published where there was a company making a very similar looking red, black, and silver uh, rig adapter, but theirs was rated for like 50 pounds, and the generic one was only rated for 15 pounds, right. and they dropped a, you know, a red epic on the ground because the piece failed, and when they were doing the autopsy, they found out that oh, this guy used all his Zacuto parts except for this one adapter right here that was the generic but looked like the Zacuto part, and it just snapped off and broke over. So, Yikes. you know, use at your own risk. I, I, I don't yeah. want to discourage people from getting the, the less expensive stuff because some of it, you know, for what you're doing, it's completely fine. I just, I don't know. There is no I, real right answer here. No, no, and I, and I think you're absolutely right in that you need to evaluate what you're 
uh, your usage is, like the example you showed about the uh, LED light on the wall. I mean, if, if you're going to put a red on something expensive, don't don't go for a cheap plastic part because it's not going to work. You're going to fail and you're going to be in big trouble. Well, so. One of my favorites, um, you know how Gorilla sells the really nice adjustable grips? There's right. a company on Amazon that sells a generic version of that for a quarter of the price. But what they don't tell you is it doesn't have nearly the gripping power of the Gorilla unit. And I've seen people like uh, this actually happened uh, last time I was traveling on a shoot. The guy had a smaller uh, Sony uh, RX10 on there. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's a small camera. No big deal. And he hangs it up. He's shooting. And I'm watching. I'm like, you think that's going to hold? Oh, yeah. He starts filming right to the ground, smashes his RX10, breaks the screen off of it, you know, basically totals the camera. And for what? He saved $25, maybe $30 getting the generic one, and now he's trashed his $900 plus camera. I mean, I don't know. Is it worth it? I yeah. guess. I, I don't know. I, I Yeah. Determine I mean, your risk. A, it's a valuable discussion, and I'm glad we had it because people don't necessarily think about all those things. They're like, con- con- uh, the dollar... What was it my my grandmother used to say? Penny wise and dollar foolish or something. I've forgotten the right phrase. But there are there are times where you can save money and it makes sense. But there are other times where you have to be really smart about what you're doing. And that's a perfect example. Yeah. So just be aware. I, you know, we've yeah. beat that subject into the ground. Now, something that will beat you into the ground with its price. Let's but- take a quick look at the Canon 35mm f1.4 Mark II. This lens has been in the waiting and in the wings, rumored for, what, almost three years now. Um, The original, if you're not familiar with the 35mm f1.4, was one of Canon's last L-series lenses that's pretty much completely plasticky, no metal or what have you, no water seal, and uh, the chromatic abrasion on that, or color fringing, if you're not familiar with the term chromatic abrasion, was pretty rough, uh, especially at fine edges would go very purpley on there. And Mitch was kind enough to add an MTF chart to this. Does look like, what do you think, Mitch, substantially changed the uh, light pattern for this guy and made it a lot better than the original? I am not an MTF chart expert. I'm a generic kind of guy, and I look at that chart and go, wow, those numbers look very different. Those, <laughs> lines, those lines are like, oh, that looks pretty significant. So is it worth the extra cost? It, if you're looking just purely at the chart, that looks pretty significant. It looks pretty impressive. Yeah, and when Mitch says significant, the price tag on the 35mm f1.4 Mark II starts at about $1,800. And just for a comparison to the original 35mm f1.4, you can go buy a gray market version of that for somewhere around $1,000. So $800 plus, almost double the price for this new one. You've got offerings from uh, Sigma, like their 35mm F1.4 Art for 750 bucks. You know, it's a pretty hard sell, uh, $1,800 plus. You better really want a 35mm F1.4 Prime in your collection from Canon uh, for that price. It is water-sealed, 
you know, yeah. uh, it's got some newer Canon mojo in it. Um, still well, ultrasonic it, though, right? It's, it's fascinating to me. The chromatic aberration that you were talking about is, is the, the purple fringing is basically what a lot of people call it. I learned a whole lot about it when I was shooting uh, stock photos for iStock Photo because every time I turned in a photo that had any kind of purple fringing on it, they would go, ah, it's in the trash, right? Never yeah. knew anything about it before. Typically, most people, you and I will notice it, but the average Joe out on the street is not going to notice that there's a little bit of a purple fringe around the edge of some particular objects, especially trees in the skyline was where it really shows up a lot. If Canon's been able to eliminate that in this lens, which they're really marketing that side of it hard, that's pretty significant for many shooters that are pro level kind of guys. Um, is it going to matter to you and I necessarily? Probably not. Yeah. For video shooters, generally it's not a huge issue uh, because by the time you crunch your footage down to 1080p, that <laughs> purple fringing sort of, it gets lost in the mix. You don't really notice it or see it, and you don't have the resolution that you have with a stills image to get in that close and really see the fringing. Uh, if you're shooting stills, though, and you start doing any sort of saturation pushes or anything like that, uh, it will really start to show up as an ugly line around whoever you're you're taking a picture of or whatever <laughs> subject matter you're working with. And it can be frustrating. Uh, yeah. Canon does have in-camera correction for it, but honestly, working with the in-camera correction on both the uh, 6D and the 5D Mark III, it only sort of masks the issue. Has that been your experience, Mitch? Yeah, yes, it's not perfect, of course. Yeah, and there you are gotta fix it in the lens. Yeah, yeah, and there are adjustments in Lightroom as well, but none of it would, uh, especially if you're shooting stock photography, would would not do the trick. Yeah. Uh, they would right. see your Photoshop trickery. Uh, yes, almost they do. Those those specialists are pretty amazing at picking out the little nits. It's interesting to me though that it took Canon this long to finally release an update to this with water i mean really the 35 millimeter f14 original it was pre-water seal so not weather sealed at all it was you know a plastic made lens it was probably one of the earliest uh, l series primes out there i wonder what's going on with canon that they're taking this long to refresh some of this stuff uh they did the 24 and the 24 mark ii probably what two years apart and that was a number of years ago, I think 2011 or 2010. So the 35 has really sat there and languished. I, I wonder if 35 f1.4, you know, if that uh, that focal length is just not popular, do you think? I don't know that it has to do with popularity. Uh, maybe it's, it's my prejudice, but I tend to think that Canon is – as a company are perfectionists. They really want to do something that is going to be significant uh, when it comes to professional kinds of lenses. Okay. And I, I caveat that because, and I, I started to say, well, the T4i, for example, I mean, they're cranking out one of those every year, right? Every T4, T5, T6, yeah. T12, you know, the, so the, the lower end consumer stuff, they tend to put out quite often. But when it comes to their professional line of gear, 
they're being very careful about not just throwing something out there just to have a new improved model. So in that regard, I think they're taking their time and doing it right. Well, this definitely looks like a, a sexy piece of glass. Will I be buying it? Probably not. I still <laughs> I own the original 35mm F1.4, and I think I'll continue to own that. I did actually, one of the lenses I did upgrade was actually my uh, 24mm F1.4, uh, and the, that's the reason I know when the newer version came out. If you use that particular lens, the original, the AF, was hunty as heck it, it barely tracked anything it was real bad uh that lens also had a lot of fringing a lot of other issues and the newer version the mark ii of the 24 millimeter f14 was a significant improvement in af performance as well as uh, a chromatic abrasion so maybe that's what we're going to get with this it was worth it for me on the 24 i don't think it's going to be worth it for me on the 35 because the 35's focus uh works pretty darn well Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> All right. I got two more things on the list before we wrap up the show. The first one is Amazon's offering one year worth of free cloud storage for anybody that buys a camera on Amazon. Uh, I've got a link in the show notes to this kind of interesting way to sell their backup program. I've, I started messing around with Amazon's cloud storage um, when they announced it. And then Google announced Google Photos. And since then, I've been using that 100%. Mitch, did you ever give either one of these a go with your photo backups? I honestly, no. I have not made the time to go do that. I need to. Uh, but I've been too busy wrapped up in other stuff to make it a priority. So I'm sorry, no. Well, I will say this is... Um... This is more of an Amazon story. So in that note, you know, go to check out the link, visit that, find out if it's right for you. Personally, though, uh, and I'll show you this right now, um, I have fallen completely in love with Google Photos, which Aww. it doesn't cost you anything. Here's some, you know, dog pictures here. Uh, and scroll through. It just does some really awesome stuff for you. And uh, oh, there's a sticker of my shoe size, you know, uh, just all <laughs> kinds of random stuff. But, you know, you can do this sort of thing. And then on top of that, Google will take the photos and generate uh, interesting stuff. As you can see, I was playing around with wide angle uh, for most of these. Yeah. But uh, the main thing is it's sort of seamless. Like, look at this. Here's a great example. You see this little uh, motion thing? It took five or six shots of my my Pomeranian and turned it into an animated little clip. And, Aww. you know, those sorts of little touches, like they're not, they're not super important, but they're enough to sway you in the direction of Google uh, as opposed to Amazon. Whereas Amazon is simply providing photo backup. Google is sort of providing photo backup plus these sort of vignettes of things that you did, interesting little stories that the algorithm is putting together. Uh, it's even gotten a hold of some of my uh, horror film stuff and created these like cute little like happy music bits to it that are like <laughs> completely unintended, but I didn't have to edit anything. It generates like a two minute clip. I put it on uh, YouTube or I put it on Facebook or whatever. And it's, it's really nice. Uh, Amazon just backs your stuff up. And while backups are really great, that extra <laughs> little important. bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Am I yeah. wrong, Mitch? Like, would, no. does that yeah, settle the thing? Right. I have never contradicted you in any way, shape, or form. You're always right. You're, hey, now. you're smarter than me. 
you investigate the hell out of all these things. And so anybody ought to do everything the TJ says. Okay. Will you send me a check really soon? Yes. For that one? Yes. Uh, okay. It's uh, it's in the mail. The check is in the mail. <laughs> no. So Google also offers their photo backups. As long as you keep the image size under a certain, um, uh, 16, meg. I think it's 16 megapixels. Right. Yeah. So, right. You know, for Panasonic users, you're dealing with 16 megapixel sensor. There's almost zero compression there. Uh, 7D, if you're an original 7D shooter, that's 17 megapixels. The 5D Mark III, 20, so you're not losing too much. It's free up to that. So then, I mean, you could pay for Amazon service and you can get all your resolution. But Woo-hoo. what are you backing up, really? If you're. You know, if you're shooting stock photos or you're shooting something that uh, you're getting paid quite a bit of money for, chances are you're going to be backing it up to some kind of company server or you're going to be sending it into iStock or something like that. And there's where your backups will be. Uh, for f- Google Photos, I'm, you know, most of these are my personal photos. They're not stuff that I'm selling and making a ton of money on. So uh, I don't know. It's It's got the extra little bits and it's free. That's a that's a pretty good sell yeah. to me, you know. Well, it's free if you go buy a camera. So everybody go to planetbyd.com slash Amazon <laughs> and and buy your camera through there so that I get a little bit of commission, okay? Yeah, that actually does help. Uh it's not very much, but every penny <laughs> keeps Mitch's uh girls in college. So Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about before we go, and, and this one's just about as exciting as the Amazon story, is that Instagram has added landscape mode. Uh, if you are a image sharing Woo-hoo! person and you use Instagram, uh, you know, the, basically your image isn't going to be square anymore. You can uh, upload various sizes. Is that exciting? I don't know. Yes. yes. You think so, Mitch? Now, well, two things. Two things with Instagram that really frustrate me. Number one was that one. I don't, I don't like square. I like landscape. I like images that are wide. Okay. Okay. The second thing that drives me absolutely crazy is the fact that you cannot zoom in on an image on Instagram. It just blows my mind because every time I pick up the app and I see an image that's on my on my phone and i'm like oh i'd like to see some detail and i try to do the pinch and zoom for those of you who were watching on video i'm doing the pinch and zoom right there on my hand because that's how (laughs) emphatic i am about doing a pinch and zoom because i'd like to see some details on some of these images i mean you know your phone's great why they can't allow pinch and zoom on their their app just drives me bonkers now i'll tell you one more thing that i've just learned the other day and this is way off topic, but uh, I know, well, this guy, this guy is claiming to have, have added 30,000 people to his email list by putting his business on Instagram and putting a new image up every day. Hmm. Just blows me away. I never would have thought Instagram would be a tool to add people to your email list. And so I'm fascinated by this, and I'm going to try it out, and I'll report back in six months and let you know if I've added 30,000 people to the Planet 5D list. (laughs) Now, uh, while we're talking about Instagram, uh, (laughs) what about Flickr? I know a number of pro and kind of um, pseudo-pro photographers that use Flickr and some of these other photo-sharing sites. 
almost religiously. They're always posting brand new images. It supposedly brings in a ton of traffic. Um, they even sell, uh, you know, some of their stills to uh-huh. people who want them on their wall, whatever. Uh, do you think those are? I don't know what 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 is the draw to that? Uh, people stealing your photos is that cool? I mean, I I don't know. I don't know. Like, <laughs> stealing your photo, people steal your photos no matter what you do. That's oh, what's frustrating. Um, I'm I'm kind of wondering if Flickr is losing. Uh, I haven't looked at their traffic stats, but it, interestingly enough, I mean, Instagram seems to be just killing it with everything these days. Uh, so are people still using Flickr? Well, must be. I know for a while they provided like a four terabyte or one terabyte backup of your photos, full res for your uh, yearly subscription of, I think it was like 90, 90 bucks a year. Uh, so it was pretty good for a while. And then, you know, Yahoo kind of let them linger and not Yahoo! really, didn't really do anything with them. And now they're sort of uh, revamping the brand. I know they've released new apps and stuff. And there still are people posting lovely pictures all the time on Flickr. And, you know, I'm looking right now, and I can share my screen. There, There's some cool stuff on here. Uh, you know, people, uh, looks like there's uh, lots of likes and comments and so on. Um, when I did use Flickr, it seemed mostly to be a sort of how-to section, like you'd take a really good picture and then people would ask you what lens you used, uh, what time of day it was, you know, what camera body you had, uh, you know, any kind of tricks. And they were really sort of searching for information on how to make their photos better, uh, especially, you know, the classic uh, waterfall smearing uh, <laughs> pictures. A lot of the, a lot of those were on there, and people were really excited. How did you do this? You know, did you use an ND filter? How long was your exposure? Where were you at? And then the other thing is, uh, they wanted to find out the location because sometimes photographers take better pictures by going to more extreme locations. And if you see someone that takes a really good picture, and you're like, "Well, where's that at?" and they tell you, then oh, I had to hike 14 miles up to the top of Mount, you know, Asmagara and like sit there for seven hours until the light crested over the earth and I almost froze to death, but I got this amazing picture. Then the next guy's like, oh yeah, I could do that. Only now I'm going to be touching a bird in the picture while I do it or, you know, something to top that guy in order to create the world's next best thing. I don't know. I think uh, it. I'm a little frustrated. I know I didn't ask you whether you have to go to work today. Are you in a hurry? You're obviously not in a hurry. Yeah, I I, I don't have any meetings Woo-hoo! until eight o'clock my time, which is yeah. ten o'clock yeah, your time. So I'm actually yeah. Well, let's just keep that. I was really kind of amazed the other day, and I don't have it in front of me because I actually deleted the email. But I got an email from some place that said, "Hey, we've declared the 2015 best landscape photographer on the planet." And the first image in the email was obviously photoshopped like crazy. I'm like, there is no way that's a quote-unquote natural landscape photo. No way. I mean, there was all sorts of smearing and, and the edges were all blurred. And I'm like, what, what's happened to us where we're giving awards to people that are Photoshop experts as opposed to just going out and taking a great photo? That I was kind of pissed, but if you look at things like, uh, like Flickr and 500px and and the images that get the most 
likes and stuff are the ones that are are just blown out colors and it just drives me crazy that I am and I'm not against Photoshop right but I really would like to see something that is a little bit closer to real life I mean it goes back to you know the same thing about models and all the cover magazines where nobody ever has any skin pores or any pimples or you know they're <laughs> always 30 pounds skinnier than they really are and that kind of stuff let's let's get, let's have some reality in life here yeah. I'm just getting really pissed off with some of that stuff. Now, while we're on this and before we go, what do you think about HDR? Because, oh, you know, oh. I know guys like Trey <laughs> Radcliffe are, are running up and down screaming HDR for life. And oh. uh, a, a lot of people are really excited about that super <laughs> oversaturated, uh, I don't know, photo. It it does. It looks like Photoshop work. Uh, what do you think? Is, it, is, is that wet your whistle? No. I, I like HDR that is so subtle you don't even know it's there, right? I mean, we want more dynamic range in most of our images. We'd love her to have 15 stops of light. You know, we like to see into the shadows sometimes. But most of the stuff, and I like Trey Reckliff. He's a great guy. Uh, I've talked to him uh, once or twice. And I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm blown away that you know his name. Yeah, um, I've met him a few <laughs> times. Really nice guy. Totally impersonable, like, easy to talk to. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I'm not, and I don't have anything against him, but he's one of the major figures for HDR these days. Like, uh, yeah. I think, uh, what was it? Lost in customs was, yes. yes. Um, you know, a lot of people go there just to learn more about HDR photography and he's a big proponent of it. Absolutely. I personally don't care for HDR too much. Um, especially, you know, Red was trying to introduce that into their video modes. Right. And it has a look. And if you're going for that, like, I'm high on acid uh, sort of thing, <laughs> you know, it's cool. It's nice. But it doesn't replace, you know, putting a proper filter over the back of a window before shooting an interior or, you know, planning your exposure or your framing correctly, or I don't know, using a filter to, to ND your sky when you're taking a, a landscape. It's, it's those sorts of things that were, were professional tools previously. And now people are doing it in HDR and it, it, it doesn't create quite the same look. Do you agree or disagree? Oh, absolutely. You, you and I are, screaming up the same flagpole here but there is there is n there is very little to like in my book about hdr it's just so overblown just about every time i see it and and like you say people are like "Ooh, that is so cool i'm like yeah like you said yeah if you're high on heroin or something <laughs> it looks great but i i'm i really want to see something that is sort of realistic i mean I, I like i said i like photoshop i like enhancing things so that it looks better so that you're focusing you know i'll go in and, and tweak a photo of a of a person so that their lighting is on them is better than the surrounding because i want you to look at the person i want your eye to see the person and not the background and the distracting crazy background so I, I'm all for enhancing photos, but doing it in a logical way as opposed to just going wacky. HDR is not my thing, never will be my thing. I use the HDR mode on my phone 
because it simply does improve the shadows in certain situations or the highlights. It knocks them down a little bit. But that's that's a tool to use to make my image look better, not look at wacky like like some of the stuff that other people are doing. <gasps> yeah, it, I, I, I don't know. Uh, the other thing, uh, and while we're on this subject of Photoshop, is filters. I know a lot of people will just apply a filter in post, but buying a nice filter <laughs> for your lens will provide significantly better images, in my personal opinion, than any kind of post-processing that you could apply to your shots. And I know a lot of people cringe when they're going to spend you know, a hundred and some dollars on a polarizer, but you know, you're shooting someone through a window and you get that beautiful shot or you want the sky to glow, you know, spend a little bit of money on good filters for your favorite lens to take those pictures and you won't regret it. Your images will look way better than what you can do in Photoshop to try and tweak that look. I think filters for the younger generation is sort of a lost Art and uh, I mean, oh yeah, uh, you know, Instagram will tell you that. Yeah, you know, applying some retro look in post is it's one thing, but going out and getting the filter that actually adds that yellow to your image and putting it on your camera, you know, like uh, that's a thing you could do that, and you could really <laughs> actually like think about what you're composing as opposed to like uh, pushing a button and and getting a little vignette on your image and you know whatever. Not that those are wrong things to do, and you can't improve your image that way, but, man, seriously investigate good filters. There's a reason why filter companies have been making awesome filters in all different types for years, and there's a reason why they make half uh, NDs, where it's clear on one part and uh, ND on the other part. So you can take sky pictures. You don't have to HDR. You can just underexpose one section and overexpose the other section, and you're good to go. You know, I don't I don't know. Uh these are all just things like because I grew up shooting with actual film, I feel like there are things that everybody should use. But maybe it's just old man DJ beating his chest oh, saying man. like, hey, you kids, why don't you do it right? This is how I did it as a kid. You know, so I, I don't know. We lived in a shoebox and we liked it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'll give you a, a, a quick rant. <laughs> So my daughter, I told you she's in college and she's taking a photography class this quarter. Yeah. So on the list of things is a skylight filter for her camera as a requirement by the professor. And I said, uh, why? And it turns out, of course, he thinks it's something that you should put on the front of your lens to protect your lens. What? Yes. It's he's one of those guys that has to buy for every lens. He's got to put a skylight filter or a neutral filter of some kind to protect the lens. And I'm like, oh, no, don't go buy a twenty dollar thing to put in front of a thousand dollar lens. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Just to, quote unquote, protect your lens. Now, I did that when I was a beginning amateur because I read it in a magazine somewhere that you wanted to protect the front element of your lens. So you go buy a, a, a filter, like a UV filter. And, yeah. Yeah. And I went, Oh, well, okay. I'll go find the cheapest one I can. I didn't go spend 150, $200 on a good one. Don't do that. People 
your lens is going to be okay. Just protect it. Don't don't <laughs> don't go buy a cheap ass filter and put it on an expensive lens just because somebody said you're going to keep your lens from scratching on the front. Now, uh, while we were talking about filters, I just wanted to bring this stack out here. Here are just a few, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and some of these are really specialty. And I, I agree, by the way, if you put uh, a cheap filter in front of a nice lens, you're just ruining a nice lens. But, you know, you got stuff like this where, hey, wait a minute, I want to add a little bit of macro to something. Like, that's a special effect. You add that, you do something cool. You know, you've got, uh, I've got half covers in here where they just, like, they do partial portions of the frame. Uh, For those of you listening in audio, you're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, the audio listeners, I'm holding up a giant stack of uh, 52 millimeter filters, and I've got these in various sizes. And, you know, some of these only get used once a, a year or once every couple of years when I'm thinking about some random shot that I want. But I do it with filters as opposed to doing it, you know, in Photoshop and making adjustments and so on. And some of them, you know, you use them once or twice and you realize, well, that's not really what I was going for. It's kind of a waste of money. But some of them, you need them and you yep. use them all the time. And once you figure out what you can do with that filter, then bam, now you're going to be using it for all kinds of things and thinking of uses for it. And go, uh, B&W makes some really good filters. Go look at their charts. They have examples of, of a filter applied and a filter not applied. And you can see what kind of things that you can get out of those. Definitely worth investing in good filters for your lenses. And I stress good because if you're going out and buying, you know, Pro Protecta on eBay for $15, that thing is just going to smear the crap out of your image and, and not really do much in the way of clarity it, or beauty. It, it works great if that's what you want, right? Smushy. Well, not, why not just slap some Vaseline on your lens and be done with it? <laughs> Uh, all right on that note mitch this is rant friday isn't it yeah no joke we've just gone all over the place ranting about stuff where can people find you mitch (laughs) he got silent on me you can't you didn't hear that no i didn't what'd you say i was doing my special effects i guess you didn't hear it uh nope i just stood there and looked weird for a second oh huh why didn't that work? I don't know. Have you not heard any of my special effects all day? No, I have not. Oh, jeez. I'm sitting here doing all sorts of stuff, and, and I didn't... And now, now he's wondering why I was not reacting to anything yeah. he was throwing at me. Well, um, Mitch, oh, where can people yeah. find you before we get out of here, man? Well, gosh, I'm really depressed now. I was having so much fun with my special effects. Planet5D.com is where you can find me. Uh, We will be upgrading our layout this weekend, as I mentioned earlier on the show, if you're still here. And you can always get our great, fantastic new iPhone ebook for free if you go to planet5d.com slash join. It's the number one ebook on on, on Amazon right now in the cinematography category, and you can get it for free on Planet5D. So don't go buy it. Get it free. 
And of course, guys, you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere podcasts are distributed. Swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com to watch the feed. You can also watch on YouTube and anywhere else that this sort of thing comes from. But thanks again, Mitch, for showing up today. And thanks, everybody, for watching the show. Make sure to go out there and write a review on iTunes because that helps us out a lot. And of course, those Amazon affiliate links are always a good thing as well. We will see you next time on another exciting episode of DSR Film Noob Podcast. (laughs) 